0: Hello, welcome to the Practical Neurology Editors' Choice podcast. My name is Amy Ross-Russell, I'm a neurology trainee in Southampton, and I'm absolutely delighted to be discussing a sensational review for the April edition of Practical Neurology, which outlines a practical approach to toxic neuropathies. I'm joined virtually by Duncan Smith, who was recently a peripheral nerve fellow at the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery, and who is now a consultant neurologist in Wellington Hospital in New Zealand. And he's joining us all the way from New Zealand, which made for some fun scheduling. I'm also joined by Dr. Ashlyn Carr and Professor Mike Lunn, both of the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery, uh, both expert voices in peripheral nerve disease. Dr. Carr's particular clinical research interest is inflammatory neuropathy, biomarker development, and understanding the toxicities of immune therapies. Professor Lund's research interests cover a range of inflammatory neuropathies, and he's also an expert in neuropathies associated with haematological disorders and and paraproteinemic neuropathies. Welcome to you all, and thank you very much for taking the time, especially at the extremes of the day we're going to talk about toxic neuropathies uh, and run through their review which takes you through different groups of toxins the neuropathies they cause it's as uh, we often say it's got really excellent tables for reference so uh, do download the paper which you can get in the link just below the podcast have a look at those tables and, and keep those in a place for reference if you can I'll keep the housekeeping brief, we've got a lot to squeeze in, but just a quick reminder to listen out for our Editor's Highlights podcast, which alternates monthly with this podcast, and a reminder that we love to hear your thoughts if you've got a minute uh, on the iTunes page. So Duncan, let's start with you. Firstly, thank you for putting such a wonderful, rich article together. I wondered if you could just start us off with a sense of how common toxic neuropathies are, why it's really important that we think of toxins in the broadest sense when we're seeing patients with neuropathy.
1: So really with with the exception of chemotherapies and alcohol most individual causes of toxic neuropathies are quite uncommon or rare but um together um they make up a not insignificant um number it it might be perhaps 2 to 4% of people in a specialist peripheral nerve clinic but there are lots of people who um have toxic neuropathies who'll be in a general neurology clinic or or be seeing their GP so it, it, as i said uh, chemotherapies is one of the most common causes that neurotoxic chemotherapies are used for a lot of common cancers and up to 30 to 40 percent of them will, will develop a neuropathy um, and then it's estimated that there's about 600,000 people uh, chronically dependent on alcohol in the UK um, and so there's, there's at risk potentially hundreds of thousands of people who may have a, a toxic neuropathy in terms of why it's important that we think about toxins as a cause, um I guess in neurology we're always looking for something we can treat or make a difference to, and toxic neuropathies are something that will improve if uh, we stop the toxin or or at least they'll stop worsening so it it's really important to at least think of toxic neuropathies because we can't remove the toxin if we don't don't think of it, um, so it's really important to just keep them in mind on on the differential.
0: Yeah that's great. And when we're going through the history of the the neuropathy itself, what does a typical toxic neuropathy look like if there is such a thing?
1: Um so I think what the paper shows is is that there there actually can be some quite diverse neuropathy phenotypes with the different toxins um, and so there's not really a typical um, toxic neuropathy pattern but by far the most common pattern is the chronic onset length dependent sensory predominant neuropathy so in nerve conduction studies you'd see a length dependent reduction in sensory more than motor amplitudes but you know as I said there are there are a number of different phenotypes and, and some neuropathies are, are sensory um, ganglionopathies so may present with sensory ataxia um, such as the, the, the platinum agents, um, some are motor predominant um, or distal motor weakness predominant, some present with severe pain, and, and some present acutely in a polyradiculoneuropathy pattern and so can be mistaken for Guillain-Barré syndrome because they present in a really similar way. Um, but but um, the majority of them will be a, a length-dependent sensory predominant neuropathy.
0: That's fantastic. Thank you. Mike, what's the tempo like usually for a drug-induced neuropathy in terms of onset and, and offset as well?
2: It, it depends really on the uh, toxin that you're looking at uh, and the different mechanisms that Duncan's alluded to. So um, some of the toxic neuropathies can be very acute. Uh, some of the drug-induced neuropathies with some of the chemotherapy agents can be very rapid in onset, particularly the ones that are uh, Guillain-Barre like although we wouldn't like to call them Guillain-Barre syndrome uh, and some of the acute poisonings for instance organophosphates or arsenic for instance in high dose might be particularly acute. There are then sort of um, slower onset or medium speed onset neuropathies such as the again other chemotherapy agents like the platinums or the proteasome inhibitors which come on uh, over the course of Uh, course of chemotherapy and then uh, there are some stepwise ones uh, either with recurrent poisonings that are dose dependent such as thalidomide you give more doses and then suddenly you get a a step and then there are the chronic poisonings lead and mercury um, which we'll probably talk about in more detail later which are rather slower in onset and sometimes a little bit difficult to perceive as a toxic neuropathy because of their slowness of onset and then Offset, well, if you remove the toxin, uh, some um, toxic neuropathies don't recover. Some have this phenomenon of coasting uh, where you stop the toxin and then apparently the uh, neuropathy carries on getting worse and cisplatinum is particularly uh, notable for that. Some can recover quite quickly. Uh, so, for instance, Velcade, um, if you stop the bortezomib and often give uh, steroids, um, then the neuropathy can reverse, at least if it's caught early. So uh, again, a little bit like there isn't a typical toxic neuropathy, there's not necessarily a, a typical tempo.
0: So we've got to be thinking about them really in in a lot of presentations and and across a, a range.
2: Yeah and that, that and that comes from your history um that you've taken keeping it in mind all the time um but uh, certainly when I'm doing clinical neurology the thing that I do first before I take the history of the neuropathy is to take the history of everything around what might be the neuropathy uh, you like to work out the situation that you're working in to start with and hopefully you've got a an eye on the fact that a toxic neuropathy might be somewhere there as one of the many possibilities at the beginning
0: yeah absolutely so Duncan, when you're starting with a patient and you're back in your history taking, we, we almost always, at some point in these podcasts, come back to, to the importance of, of detailed history taking. You've talked about how toxins come in, in all shapes and sizes. How do you zone in and what, what aspects of the history do you make sure you focus on really carefully? Yes, so so
1: as Mike alluded to, you know, being very clear about the you know, the other aspects of, of the history rather than the neuropathic symptoms um, okay. is is important. So noting the the past medical history medications, for example, at the outset and but when when considering a, a toxic cause the most important thing is to be very, very clear about the the timing of exposure and the onset time of um, neuropathy symptoms. So obviously the neuropathy has to start sometime after the toxin exposure. And so if you're considering, for example, the drug exposure, if it's not entirely clear when you're seeing the patient, it may just require a bit more digging um, than usual. That might be a review of, of old notes or a discussion with the GP about exactly when when the drug was was started. And is this consistent with what's known about the um, particular medication. Really important um, in in addition to the standard aspects of the history though to Ask about over-the-counter medications um, So vitamin supplements, for example um, Traditional medicines, you know, um, can occasionally um, From some parts of the world contain heavy metals uh, Recreational drugs, uh, diet um, and work history Because um, that may bring up some red flags for um, for toxin exposure And then finally, I think with, with toxins you, you don't just get a neuropathy You often get a whole toxidrome And so systemic um, involvement is, is quite common and particularly with um, heavy metals, for example, and so it's important to ask about these. Um, so gastrointestinal symptoms, skin changes, rash. But they can also involve other parts of the nervous system. So just thinking about other things, you know, if there's a if there's a tremor, if there's some cognitive um, impairment as well. Yeah, those are just things to, to, to ask about um, because they, they may suggest a, a toxic cause.
0: Fantastic. Thanks. Mike, you're saying you, you sort of set the scene at the beginning. What's in your preamble to, to get a sense of the person you're dealing with? Is there anything that, that we've not yet mentioned?
2: Uh, I don't think so. I and mean, one of the important things, of course, is just looking at the patient. Um, uh, I always collect my patient from the waiting room. You get quite a lot of information from seeing what they're doing before you even call their name. Uh, walking them down the corridor uh, tells you lots about the sensory and motor function and ataxia and how well or unwell they look, what um, they might do for a job and uh, what their sort of social exposures might be. Uh, And then actually, it would just be a really standard preamble. It's just being diligent at doing it. It's asking uh, about a past medical history, both sort of recent and distant Uh, it is asking about those things that Duncan talked about not only asking about drugs but there are things that people don't think are drugs which might be traditional medicines which might be over-the-counter supplements uh, and then it's asking about things that people would prefer to uh, perhaps obscure. Um, there's always the uh, alcohol thing. Um, you know, doctors always cause double the alcohol uh, um, intake of every patient. But well, I think that's probably we just calculate it carefully and people don't think they're drinking as much as they do, although um, not very many people drink enough to give themselves a toxic neuropathy, thankfully. So it is just being diligent and just probing that little bit further in order to uh, set the scene for yourself when it comes to understanding what the symptomatology is and then broadly going around the toxidrome that um, Duncan alluded to there.
0: Yeah exactly and w- when you're when you've got that toxidrome in mind and you're systemically examining uh, what are the other parts of the examination that are particularly important to pay attention to?
2: Uh, So uh, beyond going uh, to examine the neuropathy itself, um, you might be examining uh, cognition for um, an encephalopathy or some cognitive disorder. Um, uh, You might be looking for uh, features of ataxia that might not be evident on the bed. Uh, They come from obviously examination of the the gait and the limbs for cerebral ataxia. Um, the, The general examination is important. Um, so uh, some uh, syndromes come with abdominal pain, for instance, and even tenderness. Some of the toxic neuropathies, such as uh, arsenic, uh, Mees lines in the mouth, um, uh, and uh, the hyperkeratosis of the soles of the feet, uh, um, are diagnostic. Um, and in fact, on more than one occasion, um, uh, one's lifted up the sheets to look at the soles of the feet and found the hyperkeratosis on the soles of the feet that tells you about the um, uh, arsenic. So uh, being thorough uh, is really important. And I'm always surprised when I examine a patient like I always do, and the patient clambers off the couch and says, goodness gracious, nobody's ever done all that before. Um, And um, I'm not quite sure why people don't, and how they manage to find what they do without doing a complete examination. So it's, again, just being diligent. And of course, there's a time pressure on that. But being focused when uh, you've got to the examination uh, is important. And you sort of know what you're looking for once you've taken the history.
0: I thought we might just zone in on some of the anti cancer drugs. Ashley, you're a, a real expert in these, and it's really great to have you here. We could spend ages talking about these, so I'll, I'll try and be focused. But just to remind listeners that the, the paper has a, a wealth of information on this, it has a fantastic table summarising uh, the chemotherapy drugs. So, so do download it and have a look in more detail. Ashley, just broadly, what patterns of neuropathy do we see with the chemotherapy agents? And, and we've mentioned how common they are, but is this your first line uh, diagnosis in, in people with, with neuropathies with cancer? Is this the first thing you think about?
3: Well, I don't know if it's the first thing. It very much depends on the type of neuropathy that the patient is presenting with and the timing that you are um, referred to the patient, usually by the oncologist. So um, it's one of the causes, obviously, for neuropathy in someone who um, has cancer or has been exposed to cancer therapies. I suppose you could, to really simplify it even down beyond the, the table that Duncan really nicely put together for the paper, you can divide it into two main groups. You have the traditional chemotoxic cancer drugs, the platinum, um, the taxanes, the vinca ankyloids, And then you have the, um, a range of more recently developed um, cancer drugs, often which have an immune basis to the, the neuropathy. So some sort of immunogenic trigger that causes an inflammatory neuropathy pattern very often. So with the, the platinum and the taxanes and the vinkankyloids, they're all a dose dependent neuropathy um, presentation. So the, the neuropathy often gets worse um, with the cumulative dose or uh, during the course of the cycles of chemotherapy. Now, there are obviously some um, exceptions to that and you can get a a chandelopathic type short-lived phenomena for a week or so with some of the platinum compounds in and around the actual infusion date. But that tingly stuff and the the tight throat and the tingly lips, that tends to settle um, spontaneously after a couple of days or a week in the people who do experience it. The taxanes and the vinca ankyloids, They affect um, predominantly axonal transport and the microtubule function. So you really do get that traditional length dependent tips of the toes for the symmetrical progression up to the knees. And then by the time the knees have a sensory symptoms, then the, the fingertips are involved. Mostly these are sensory phenomenon in the majority of people. You can get some motor deficits, again, in that length dependent pattern, but the sensory stuff is far and away predominant. And hopefully if the Oncologists have picked up on the symptoms and they're really very astute when it comes to screening for these symptoms. There is an interruption in the chemotherapeutic regimen, either dropping the dose or stopping the cycles a wee bit earlier when these symptoms um, develop so that we can limit the nerve damage. Mike's already uh, mentioned the concept of coasting. It's most commonly described in the platinum compounds, but you can see it um, which is a continued progression of the symptoms even after the the drug has stopped. But these compounds do tend to result in some improvement or resolution of the symptoms with withdrawal of the, 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 um, the drug that's causing the irritation or the dysfunction to the nerves. So they are the traditional chemotoxic neuropathies. And very often, uh, as neurologists, we get to see these patients you know, quite far down the line. Um, and it may, may even be about reassurance to the patient that the pattern of their neuropathy, the tempo of the neuropathy onset, and it um, is is consistent with definitely a chemotoxic thing and it 's not something else horrible to worry about regarding the cancer um, itself so it's it can be symptom management predominantly then you 've got the other. Um, more recent drugs. And this does also include the proteasome inhibitors. It includes the BRAF and MEK inhibitors and it includes the immune checkpoint drugs. So the the pattern of neuropathies seen in those drugs, which modify in some way how the immune system facilitates cancer and attack cancer regression. They can. They have a variety of presentations. Some, as mentioned before, can be an ac- acute, subacute, polyradiculoneuropathy akin to the pattern we see in Guillain-Barré. Some can be a little bit more subacute or chronic and look essentially like a CIDP pattern with proximal and distal weakness and positive sensory phenomena. And some can be really quite patchy, like a vasculitic or mononeuritis multiplex, or even it has been described with bortezomab, a multifocal motor neuropathy type phenomenon. So um, those drugs, yes, you need to stop the agent, but also... Some sort of um, immunomodulatory therapy, usually steroids as the, the helpful fire blanket for all things immunogenic can help with the resolution of those symptoms.
0: That's fantastic. that's a, a really wonderful overview. A couple of questions on the the more traditional ones. You, you mentioned in the papers some particular risk factors, um, anemia, low vitamin D in particular. Some of those are modifiable. Do do you recommend or do oncologists tend to try and optimise those beforehand? Do you put people on vitamin D or do you you try and boost their uh, haemoglobin if they're anemic?
3: Most of those studies were performed by oncologists in oncology cohorts and, um, you know, have minimal Im- involvement of neurologists, really, or peripheral nerve doctors. And the, the benefit of those big studies is that they've got huge numbers um, in comparison to the rarity mm. of many of our neurological conditions. You can identify risk factors whenever you have much, much, much larger numbers. So, yes, these are Basic pre um, therapy screening um to lists that they run through. They often use them as part of the the consent um process to sort of identify or warn people of the potential risk of the symptoms. But they they do modify whenever they when they do they identify uh, um something like a, a, a low vitamin D. So there's a lovely line that really struck me in a book I read relatively recently Mortality by Christopher Hitchens. So Christopher Hitchens was a, a an Anglo-American um, journalist wrote for the New Yorker and he taught. Mortality is a relatively short book uh, that he- was published posthumously and it describes his sort of last 9 months of life from diagnosis of um cancer to death and he wasn't told in a lot of detail about the potential for a chemotoxic neuropathy and he describes it as feeling like he's dying from the inside out so i think that when we are consenting or screening for or considering potential risk for of these sorts of complications with these drugs telling the patient what to expect Or even reassuring the patient after the event that this is something we understand and should settle down over time can really take away from the scariness and the the horribleness of the experience of the symptoms. So even if we can't prevent it, being a, a confident diagnostician and communicating these things appropriately is very helpful to the patient and what they're experiencing. Mm.
0: And our input as neurologists then is is very valuable, isn't it? Because it it must be a very difficult decision and and quite an individualised decision, that, that treatment versus toxicity.
3: Yes. And um, with all of these cancer drugs and the potential risk of um, a rare complication, because the neurological complications of, for example, the checkpoint inhibitors and the the BRAF inhibitors are very, very, very low. So a checkpoint inhibitor monotherapy has a risk of a neurological toxicity in about one to three or four percent or about 10 percent when the two drugs are used together, the CTLA ones and the PD ones. However, you balance those risks against the, um, the impact of immune therapy on cancer prognosis. So in the metastatic melanomas, where the median survival 10 years ago was eight months, these people with dual therapy immune treatment are 50% are surviving at five and 10 years. So it's a, you're essentially giving somebody a percent. A possible cure and balancing that against the one to two percent risk of a neurological complication. So um, yes, it is individualised. Um, the data we have on um, stratification of risk in these immune therapy drugs is, is not as good as the uh, risk stratification we have in the very traditional chemotherapies. We really don't have much data on how we predict who will have a neurological toxicity and who won't. But um, we do know the impact on the cancer, and the impact on the cancer is... Um, revolutionary and and so impressive that taking into account these small risks and thinking about how potentially modifiable they are if they do occur with stopping the drug holding the drug using steroids or other immunosuppression medications is some is a risk that many patients and many clinicians and oncologists are willing to balance off
0: yeah, yeah, absolutely. We've had some some really interesting local discussion about it recently with a couple of very very challenging uh, neuromuscular cases. Let's just talk briefly about sort of managing those. You've mentioned high dose steroids as your treatment of choice, and you you say that in the paper very clearly. Would you recommend that all of the immune reactions, all of the the neuropathic reactions to those, are treated with those first line?
3: So I think that there are there are lots of um guidelines for oncologists floating around and all the oncologists will reach for steroids first, so it would be very uncommon unless you're a named neurologist to reach for in these scenarios that they wouldn't be on steroids. To be absolutely honest, so steroids are our first line, and I think that's a perfectly sensible thing. As I said, the fire blanket, switch everything off as quickly as possible. However, there are some neurological complications, particularly of the PD one inhibitors, where a myasthenic crisis can be precipitated in a patient who was not previously known to have myasthenia. They often have acetylcholine receptor antibodies. And the thing about the checkpoint inhibitor complications is that you you can precipitate a myasthenic crisis alongside myocarditis and myositis. They call it triple M syndrome. And that is by far and away the commonest um, and most scary, I think, um, neurological complication triggered in, in these scenarios. And we know as neurologists that steroids are not great in a myasthenic crisis and can precipitate the steroid dip at 10 days. So in that scenario where we know about the pathogenicity of the antibody, then the use of plasma exchange can be quite helpful in turning things around, lowering the dose of steroids um, that the patient is exposed to, because they will be given steroids for their cardiomyositis and their myositis. But it's about balancing out the mechanism of the um, immune attack that is causing the syndrome and using the most sensible combination of of therapeutics. Now, some of these patients do also stabilise in the longer term with some mycophenolate. Not everyone requires longer term immunosuppression. It's a very individualised thing and it's about paying attention, as we've said earlier on, to the clinical presentation of the patient in front of you signs and symptoms to dictate whether you need to immunosuppress for longer or not thank you that's that's
0: a fantastic overview of a of a, an evolving and a and a very complex area Let's come back to the general population and maybe just talk briefly about some of the really common drugs that we see used in the hospital. This is useful for all of us, whether we're seeing acute liaison cases or or seeing people in a general clinic, because these so often come to a general neurologist. I was really struck by the range of antimicrobials that you discuss. Duncan, I wondered if you could just mention some of the the main antimicrobials that we should be aware of and and that we should consider, and perhaps just give us an overview of the neuropathy you see from from nitrofurantoin, which I've chosen because it has to be one of the most prescribed medications in the hospital, uh, particularly in the AMU, where, where we're picking up a lot of our patients. Yeah, I mean nitrofurantoin. I mean, I'm not a big fan of the drug. It um,
1: myself. I mean, it can cause drug fever and interstitial pneumonitis, but it is, you know, on um, you know, protocols for first line treatment for for urinary tract infections. So the the neuropathy that's described with it is is clearly very very rare um, because it's prescribed all the time. We don't see it very often. A population study was was done on this. And, I mean, population study really looking at the, um, comparing the numbers of prescriptions to the numbers of, of reported events of peripheral neuropathy. So, I mean, perhaps, you know, there the can be underreporting with these sorts of studies. But um, they, they found it to be something like a 1 in 143,000. So, I mean, it's clearly very, very rare. But what what's described um, is is actually an interesting, quite acute onset motor predominant neuropathy so it it comes on acutely motor more than uh, sensory symptoms but distal predominant um, axonal neuropathy Um, the onset would usually be during the treatment course, or sometimes even soon after finishing the the treatment course. Um, And and on examination, patients would have distal weakness, um, they may have wasting, and they'd they'd have some sensory loss. It's been linked particularly in in patients with renal failure and um, patients with more prolonged long-term treatment. But um, it has also been described in patients with normal renal function and with short courses. But um, clearly, something that's that's very very rare, uh, given the amount that it's prescribed. I mean, some of the other um, antimicrobials, I mean, there's linezolid, which um, it tends to be with prolonged courses. Um, it, it's a, a painful, uh, predominantly sensory uh, neuropathy. And metronidazole, I think the neuropathy with, with that, that was also a, a painful uh, sensory predominant neuropathy, but that, that used to occur more when um, people were prescribed longer courses of metronidazole. It used to be prescribed quite a lot for inflammatory bowel disease, but now with some some of the better newer treatments for inflammatory bowel disease, it would be very uncommon um, for patients to be prescribed um, that for for more than a couple of weeks at a time, um, and so this has mainly been um, described with courses of, of four weeks or more, and, and then you've you've got. Um, Dapsone as well um, which can be um, used for pneumocystis pneumonia um, and that, that can cause a motor predominant, um, distal motor predominant um, neuropathy and once again this is sort of mainly with prolonged courses and I guess it's like a lot of toxins it's, it's dose dependent the more you give the more likely um, you are to, to get a, um, a toxic neuropathy. Now, there has been a little bit in recent years about fluoroquinolones, um, talking about um, neuropathy, and you know there's there's been some um, I guess some court cases where people have, have attributed neuropathy to, to fluoroquinolones. Now going through the literature on this, um, you know there's there's not really a lot of detailed clinical information. It's mainly just. Population studies. So, all, all that I could really gather was that people tended to complain of sensory symptoms, but you know there wasn't very good phenotyping of the of the neuropathy. And when they did look at population studies, um, it, it was around about one in a hundred and fifty thousand um, for a ten day course. So, if if there is a neuropathy due to fluoroquinolones, um, it's likely to be very very rare, and so it, it can be really difficult to to attribute causation. And so Um, there are a lot of people because of the um, interest that it's it's had um, in in the media uh, people might think that um, they've got uh, neuropathy due to fluoroquinolones but from um, my review of the literature I wasn't you know particularly convinced it's a definite cause Um, and then there's the the anti-tuberculous drugs which are antimicrobial, isoniazid um, can cause a neuropathy, but this is this is um, essentially due to an activation of um, vitamin B6, um, and so um, pe- people are now given vitamin B6 routinely, and so this is is um, not not generally seen. You've got um, in the past there were antiretroviral drugs for HIV but they've now been the ones that cause neuropathy have now been superseded by newer drugs that don't cause neuropathy and so um, in, in patients with HIV if they develop a neuropathy it's it's now very unlikely if they're in a um, you know in a, in a modern health system um, that uh, the neuropathy is going to be due to their, their treatment it's much more likely to be due to the HIV itself.
0: That's a fantastic overview thank you. So that's a bit about commonly prescribed drugs and we talked about relatively essential drugs. What about the, the non-prescribed or the self-prescribed toxins, so drugs of abuse or perhaps accidental or, or deliberate overconsumption? Uh, Mike, we've we've talked about alcohol and and you you've had a lovely discussion in the paper of how sort of multifactorial that can be. What are the commonest uh, other neuropathies that you see with drugs of abuse, and are there any new agents that we should be aware of that are that are starting to appear with problems?
2: Yeah, so I think probably the the, the most significant new agent uh, that we see, or it's an old agent that's returned. Uh, is, is nitrous oxide. And that's receiving a lot of interest, both in the UK and also internationally, where, uh, certainly some big cities in Europe are seeing quite a lot of nitrous oxide complications. Uh, and I think that's something to really be, uh, uh very aware of as a potential cause of some presenting neuropathies. Um, nitrous oxide, uh, of course, it, it's used for driving uh, whipped cream cylinders. Uh, so the Shanti cream that you can put on top of your hot chocolate um, is probably got a little bit of nitrous oxide in it. But you can buy the canisters uh, either in small form or uh, in uh, large form. Uh, and that's the, the reason it's they're called whippets is for that reason, because they drive whipped cream. Uh, and uh, in nightclubs, they're often uh, bought as balloons uh, where you discharge the canister into a balloon uh, so that uh, you can then inhale the nitrous oxide and you'll regularly see the small uh, silver or coloured canisters in the gutter or outside nightclubs associated with some colourful balloons on the on the pavement um, where lots of whippets have been taken. Uh, nitrous oxide is an interesting, very simple gas, but its problem is that it, it irreversibly oxidises vitamin b12 uh, and uh, turns it entirely inactive and therefore you have to resupplement your vitamin b12 to uh, make your active vitamin b12 replete again Uh, and so the uh, patients or people who don't take much extra vitamin b12 are particularly susceptible to the effects of this And that tends to be in um, various areas of the community that tend uh, either to uh, have limited diets um, uh, and students are particularly susceptible of that. Uh, There's a lot of vitamin B12 in beer. So people who don't drink beer... Um, uh, are relatively susceptible to nitrous oxide toxicity uh, and people who don't drink at all and perhaps the students as well and there are some sections of society uh, where um, alcohol is not drunk and they don't want to smell of alcohol coming home they will tend to be users of nitrous oxide and be susceptible to this neuropathy of course it's it's doesn't have any smell lasts a relatively short time uh, and uh, the effects of it wear off so that you can turn up at home not drunk so it has that um, advantage the disadvantage in terms of uh, seeing patients like this is that you can measure the vitamin B12 uh, and it will be normal uh, in most assays unless your hospital measures active B12 and so you have to look at the methylmalonic acid and the homocysteine which are in the pathway that vitamin B12 helps to catalyse and both the homocysteine and metharmonic acid will be usually sky high in uh, regular or high dose use. The neuropathy is interesting because it's not only a neuropathy but also uh, uh, has has dorsal column uh, involvement and can result in a paraplegic um, or even tetraplegic situation in severe and long-term use and so patients are often extremely ataxic. and acutely so. So it's it's important to to think about in the areas of the community that are likely to to use that agent. Things that are perhaps going out of fashion um, now, uh, uh, glue sniffing, which we don't see so much of uh, these days, and um, that tends to cause a, a progressive sensory neuropathy, um, which is sometimes painful. Uh, and interestingly, you can you think you've got somebody who's been glue sniffing and ex- exposed to n-hexane. Um, uh, then the hypuric acid is something that you can request on on testing and then perhaps the other drug of misuse abuse uh, cocaine which can be associated with a, a, a multiple mononeuropathy or vasculitis not actually necessarily due to the cocaine but usually due to whatever the cocaine is cut with uh, so it's not always that clean uh, and uh, probably causes a vasculitis uh, through the cutting agents so uh, but, but I think probably the most important thing for us to be so thinking about at the moment is nitrous oxide and certainly in, in A&E there are um, around the country there are multiple people turning up every week with the effects of uh, nitrous oxide toxicity um, so, so keep an eye out for that.
0: Yeah, thank you. That's really, really helpful. What about supplements or or people sort of self-medicating on the internet? uh, Do you see much in terms of people Um, ordering um, things themselves or overtaking supplements? One of those things you have to
2: dig for in the history. Uh, So I think the supplements that are probably the most neuropathic are supplements with vitamin B6 in. Uh, And if you go to your local uh, chemist, uh, large chemist, um, I was quite surprised the other day walking into mine, there's a whole wall. Um, of supplements. There's a a dizzying range of supplements. Uh, And um, the supplement, the vitamin that probably is toxic and causes most problems here is is vitamin B6. Um, I looked at my vitamin tablets this morning on the kitchen counter. Uh, They contain two milligrams of uh, vitamin B6, which is just about the recommended daily allowance. But if you go to your uh, local large chemist you'll find some supplements um where there will be 50 or 100 milligrams of vitamin b6 uh, as the content of those supplements uh, and they're uh, on the label it says um you know super boost or um uh, you know super strength and uh, so they're advertised as super duper uh, and so um yeah, people buy them uh i think as well uh, having talked to many people uh, with uh, vitamin b6 uh, toxicity there is certainly one or more particular sets of vitamins uh, in the in the uk where despite what it says on the label there's even more vitamin b6 in there than we'd like to think and of course vitamins aren't regulated in the same way uh, as medicines How much vitamin B6 is toxic is really difficult to know, because the literature is poor in this area. Certainly there is a um, vitamin B6 deficiency, uh, and that's well described um, from um, uh, prison of war camps in the Second World War, etc. We don't see much vitamin B6 uh, deficiency these days. Vitamin B6 toxicity uh, probably occurs with very high level supplementation of the sort that occurs in these super strength vitamin compounds and when you measure the vitamin b6 you might find levels that are five or ten times the upper limit of normal and those toxicities tend to cause um, a sensory ganglionopathy phenotype uh, with uh, unsteadiness and ataxia uh, as well as sometimes some painful sensory symptoms Uh, and the damage is at the um, uh, dorsal root ganglion. Uh, And so therefore, even when you stop those uh, toxins, there's only partial, if any, improvement in the neuropathy. Um, So it's something to be aware of uh, because you have to hunt for it in the history because people think that they're doing themselves lots of good. Um, In terms of other herbal remedies, I think it's it's very difficult uh, to sort of identify individual things that cause neuropathy, But some of the more traditional medicines are very problematic, particularly when they are um, sought from uh, other countries, which, of course, is very easy to do. Uh, So many Ayurvedic medicines um, contain or are contaminated with uh, heavy metals, and that's probably where I have seen more of uh, the heavy metal toxicities, um lead is uh, not infrequently in some of those ayurvedic medicines uh, and lead toxicity is a, a, an interesting Um, Motor neuropathy uh, tends to be rather upper limb predominant, painful, insidious in onset, presenting with a wrist and finger drop. Um, uh, And because the Ayurveda is perhaps more used by uh, ethnic communities, often occurs in uh, people of uh, ethnic background. Uh, Arsenic uh, is used in some traditional medicines as well. Um, uh, and we've talked about that causing hyperkeratosis of the soles and the palms as a clue along with the Mees lines uh, in the gums. Um, arsenic is uh, a very effective uh, anti-diabetic agent um, uh, and occurs in lots of the traditional anti-diabetic treatments um, because it's therapeutic Um unfortunately it's very toxic uh, and in low-level supplementation uh, can cause arsenic toxicity. Uh, But of course, there are other reasons for uh, heavy metal toxicities that we occasionally see as well that are uh, not deliberately supplemented.
0: Yes, thank you. I'd hoped we'd had some time to talk, but I think, we're, I think we're running a bit short. I think just before we finish, let's talk a bit about what we can do about toxic neuropathies. So, Duncan, what, what's the most important part of managing the individuals? Um, and are there any particular acute treatments that we should know about?
1: Yes, so um, by far the most important thing is to to stop the the toxin. Um, A lot of neuropathies will get better, some um, won't get better, but they will generally Stabilise, and so the first thing is is to just think about toxins as a possible cause, um, so that um, the toxin can be stopped. Because if you don't think about it, you know the toxin will will continue to cause neuropathy, and the patient will get worse. And then the the other parts of treatment. So some. Toxic neuropathies have specific treatments associated with them, um, not all of them. So, for example, we've talked about the immune-related toxic neuropathies like um, checkpoint inhibitors, but also um, some of the the drugs like TNF-alpha inhibitors can cause um, immune-related neuropathies, and they may respond to immunomodulatory treatment. We've talked a bit about um, heavy metal toxicity and um, some... Times um, chelation therapy is recommended for for heavy metal um, toxicity, um, which which may be helpful. Um, and then then there's um, some neuropathies that require supplementation of, of vitamins. So um, of course nitrous oxide, which we've talked a lot about, with B12 replacement and uh, duodopa, um, which is the the levodopa carbidopa intestinal gel that causes a, a B6 or a pyridoxine um, deficiency neuropathy, and so that that would be um, treated with with vitamin replacement so so some have specific treatments and then just finally managing complications of neuropathy um, particularly if the neuropathy doesn't get better so um, that may be management of neuropathic pain um, with with drugs like tricyclics or uh, deloxetine um, and if they've got um, significant walking difficulty um, physiotherapy or orthotics um, so those would be the main sort of parts of, of managing them.
0: That's fantastic. Thank you. Ashley, what's the prognosis on a longer-term outcome? What can you say to people about getting better?
3: As I've said many times, these are these toxic neuropathies are very much time-related to exposure to the drug. So if we remove the, the toxic element, then there is potential for recovery. But something that I say... Um, to almost every patient with every sort of neuropathy that they that they present with if it's a every sort of sort of acquired neuropathy is that your regenerative capacity is very much dependent on what else is going on in your body, so your ability to repair regrow, get better is age dependent younger people are more likely to be able to repair a nerve than Older people, um, very often if we hit the sort of 70s and 80s age group, if we aim to stop progression, that is the target. And then symptom manage, like Duncan has just um, uh, alluded to. But uh, in the younger people where there is potential for nerve regeneration, regrowth, repair, it's about optimising the environment in which the, the nerve is regrowing so Checking things like their people's blood sugar, making sure any diabetes is as well controlled as possible, facilitates um nerve improvement. Making sure all of the um the many vitamins that we've mentioned today are within normal limits. Making sure that there, there are no other toxic elements such as excessive alcohol that maybe seemed like a, a secondary element whenever you were going looking for the the main toxin that. Has caused the damage but just optimizing the patient's um, metabolic milieu if you like to facilitate recovery after removal of the primary toxin
0: thank you that's a, a really fantastic summary to, to finish on and that's been a wonderful journey through toxic neuropathies thank you all so much for your time and your expertise especially with time zone challenges There's plenty more in the article that we haven't been able to cover. So so people who are listening, please do download the PDF. It's freely available online um, and take a look through the finer details. Get hold of those those excellent tables for reference for future cases. That's all we've got time for today. Thank you to everyone for listening. uh, And thank you again to our brilliant neuropathy team, Dr. Duncan Smith, Dr. Ashlyn Carr and Professor Mike Lunn. Thank you.